0: When you're trying to climb a mountain you don't just go straight up switch back so you go back and forth these kind of represent different points of a journey Seed founders that haven't been successful they look at the top of the mountain and then they just aim straight for that unfortunately you still see most of these roles held by men despite the fact that there's so much research out there on how much better diverse teams perform. Having a diverse team, I think, should be part of every modern team's values. I think it is something that needs to be addressed up front. is really hard to then solve for later on. It was kind of a no-brainer and also not stressful for me to say, okay, I'm going to put on this summit for 100 plus women and find sponsors for it. I wish I could have put that mindset on myself earlier. But at the same time, I think your confidence grows as you have more experiences, as you kind of watch yourself do things. The more that you do and the more that you put yourself out there, the more empowered you feel and the more capable you feel. I think a lot of the limitations we put on ourselves just come from our own minds.
1: Welcome back to the Generation Hustle Podcast. I'm Sherrison alongside my co-host and good friend Uman, and we're continuing our VC series as we near the end of the year. Episode 90 is with Amanda Robson, partner at Cowboy Ventures. Originally from Ancaster, Ontario, Amanda, better known as Robbie, invests in B2B seed and pre-seed founders, and focuses on innovations in developer tooling, data management, security, applied AI, and supply chain. In November 2020, she led a $3.2 million investment round in a security software company called Drata, now worth $1 billion. When she's not crushing it as a newly minted and the youngest ever partner at Cowboy Ventures, she's running her organization, Modern Angels, which seeks to democratize funding for women and non-binary people. She also co-hosts her own podcast, the Open Source Startup Podcast. Cowboy Ventures is a seed stage focused fund investing in digital startups that seeks to back exceptional founders who are building products that reimagine work and personal life in large and growing markets. So we sit down to speak with Robbie about her career journey from Ontario to Silicon Valley. She details the tech landscape across North America, the importance of DEI, why she's big on open source, the art of cold outreach, and much more. This is a great conversation with so much information to distill that we hope you enjoy. Robbie, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to other Canadians.
1: (laughs) Sweet. We
2: have a huge agenda today in terms of, you know, your past, kind of what you're working on now. And there's also a pleasant surprise talking to a fellow podcaster. So we'll get into a bunch of those things as well. But as always, we love to start off with kind of the past and kind of learn more about Robbie and kind of the early influences that push you towards VC. So could you kind of walk us through those first?
0: Definitely. So I will say that I'm not one of those people who knew they were gonna be a venture investor their whole life. I didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Toronto and my dad is an entrepreneur, but it's like a lot, you know, smaller scale businesses. A lot of things that wouldn't be necessarily deemed venture scale. Um, but how I actually came into venture was a little bit more step function. So when I was in school, I went to an undergrad business school called Ivy, and all the smartest kids in my class were going into investment banking. Right. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was looking at what they were doing and thinking, okay, I admire these this set of my peers. I think they're really smart. This job seemed really interesting. So I did a summer in banking. And this is working in Toronto and in Canada. Most of the big, you know, M and A and banking activity happens around natural resource companies. Now they're starting to be more tech companies in Canada yeah. that are kind of at that scale. But this is way back in 2013. So at that time, you have like mining companies buying other mining companies, <laughs> yeah. Paper companies doing a lot of acquisitions. So after doing a summer in Toronto, I realized that I was much more interested in tech, and so. I actually cold called my way to an investment bank called William Blair based in San Francisco. It was their tech company group. And that was how I first got started in in tech. And I also started developing a skill that I didn't know was going to be super valuable around cold calling. And then from there, I spent two years in banking, was working with founders directly on their stories and helping them get acquired and position well to get acquired. And from there, I decided I wanted to work more long term with founders, went to a firm called Norwest which did everything from early stage to growth. I wasn't totally sure what I'd want to do within kind of that, um, that realm and really like the earliest stage stuff. So everything I sourced was seed to really early Series A for the most part. And so that's what led me to Cowboys. So that's a very condensed version of my, my path. But I would say that I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it was very opportunistic and just took a lot of learnings from my career path that would then inform what my next step was.
2: You refer to cold calling as an avenue that kind of allowed you, you know, this path down VC eventually. Could you maybe just talk talk us through the approach, why you took that approach? And even if I were to think about this discussion today, it was through a cold email as well. So could you maybe just talk to about the importance of getting over that hump and the effectiveness of cold emailing, calling, whatever it is?
0: Definitely. I think it is a skill that everybody should develop because what what cold calling essentially is, is creating an opportunity or a, like an avenue where there wasn't one prior. So it's building a connection with someone or a group of people where you didn't have a warm intro. And if you don't cold call and don't kind of branch out of your network, then you end up being artificially constrained in your opportunity set and in your network. And it's, it's just one of those things that it gives you this feeling and i'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well but my first experience cold calling made me feel very empowered like i could create opportunity for myself i didn't necessarily have to rely on the networks that i had around me or the opportunities i had around me because for me coming from toronto there were a few banks that had offices on the west coast that my school had connections to but There weren't that many. So if I just looked at the opportunity set that I had based on my network at school and the opportunities that came to me from school, then I would never have been able to get to San Francisco. So doing that right out of school and realizing, oh, wow, I can really go and find whatever job opportunity I want and as long as I'm qualified for it and at least have the opportunity to go after it. That's really powerful. And so in my job now, there's a lot of cool calling that goes on with sourcing and so i feel like extremely comfortable at this point going out and going after companies where i think maybe prior i would think like oh i don't have an intro to them or oh i've heard it's a really hot deal and there's all these firms like it just it's really empowering feeling and then one other point i want to make on this is i think a successful cold reach out is something that is service oriented so it serves the other person so it's not just hey I am reaching out because I want to talk to you about a potential investment or I want to talk to you about a job. It's a really informed reach out around, hey, I think I can help you with X. I saw you were writing about this theme in business or this theme, and I cover a lot of developer tools. So this theme in developer tools, and I've also been studying it. I think there's some learnings I can share that will be helpful for you. So it's very service oriented. So it gives the other person a reason other than just being nice and taking a call to want to talk to you.
2: totally agree with you. And I'm in the same boat in terms of value creation. The other individual is busy. They have a lot of things going on. And so how are you going to kind of stand out from the rest of those emails or rest of those calls Um, and really understanding and trying to develop that relationship and trust from the initial call is the biggest thing. And like even throughout kind of what um, through the cold emailing I've done, At first, I was horrible at it. Like most people, you know, you get better at it over time. Um, But I I think the biggest thing that I've accomplished through that is kind of avoiding this idea of fear around reaching out to people. And I think that's a huge thing, Uh, increasing your opportunity, uh, like you mentioned, or surface area for luck, I'd say, uh, just through reaching out. And if you think about anything in life you do, it's a sales game, essentially. And so kind of... Taking that approach and applying that into my day to day has really been huge and immense. Right? We wouldn't be talking today if it wasn't for that cold email. Right? So it just goes to show you, like, uh, and I encourage everyone to do this. Like, go out there. You're going to mess up first or a couple times initially, but you'll get better at it over time for sure.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's actually something that we look for in the founders that we back because if. If you're trying to make sure that what you're building makes sense for an audience, then it's actually solving a problem. You should be constantly iterating and getting perspectives on it and not ones from friends who are going to give you their time Absolutely. and tell you that they are excited about what you're building because they like you as a person, but people who are like, oh, wow, this is solving a huge problem for me. So I, I think it's a skill that we at Cowboy, but also I look for in the founders that I back.
2: Yeah, I love that. I think confirmation bias from friends sometimes skews your uh, thinking in terms of what you're building out. So the most unbiased individual, reach out out to them and they'll give you the actual real view of what you're building. Um, So fun fact, we've also mentioned that you're Canadian, but you've made the move down to the States. So as someone who's contemplating the same thing, what was the decision like for you? And why were you convinced that, you know, the States was the right place for you moving forward?
0: Yeah, so I would say that it had more to do with the industry that I was most excited about and wanted to be involved in. And you can make the argument now that tech is not as centralized in Silicon Valley, be, but it still is, I think, to like to date the most powerful place where you'll be able to build a network in tech, see just really innovative and smart people in, uh, in masses. So for me, like that was the biggest piece. I also think just candidly, I I adore being Canadian. I adore yeah. Canada. I think there are so many parts of systems in Canada, especially around schooling and healthcare that are super admirable. But at the same time, I have seen just so many talented friends move to the States because there's kind of more of an opportunity. And I think that's changing because over the last, you know, eight years that I've been here, you've seen more and more companies, whether it's. Hootsuite or Shopify or ClearBank or like do really, really well in Canada. So I think there's more of an entrepreneurial culture. But for me, it felt like at the time moving here, I would be around the people who I wanted to be around with around and learn from. And so that really felt like it was folks who were, had the same mentality. we were all moving to, to San Francisco specifically.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you on that one. Uh, one of the common themes is like, so I went to school at Laurier And then we used to be called the high school across the street from UW. And we know (laughs) the engineers uh, would always want to go to SF. The common theme for them was SF or bust. Because within tech, while I was in school, it wasn't really a big thing in Waterloo. We had BlackBerry, which obviously didn't turn out too well. um, And then we had Shopify later on. But most of them just wanted to go to SF because like to your point, the network, the opportunity, everything is kind of down south right now. Although I, I am seeing a lot more improvement in terms of ecosystems building up locally, which I'm very excited about, but it's going to take a bit of time before we say we have a lot more unicorns coming in Canada and stuff like that. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's it's moving in the right direction, but it, it at the time really felt like this was the place to be for the kind of career I wanted to build for myself.
2: Yep. Yeah, nope. Totally makes sense. And so um we know you as Robbie but your actual name is Amanda so I had to ask you this where did the nickname come from and why does it why perhaps is it significant to you because I feel like nicknames are important
0: Yeah and I really appreciate that you brought this up because I have had friends reach out mm-hmm. since I was pretty public and also just had a really strong opinion about wanting to be called Robbie saying mm-hmm. that they wanted to be called a name that was a nickname or something other than their, you know, given formal first name and they wanted to talk about how to do it. And so, first I'll say when I was growing up, there was two there were two Amandas in my friend group and so both of us got called by our last names. Her last name was Albini and mine was Robson. Okay. And so, over time, I was known as Robson or a version of that by all of my friends. And then when I entered the work world, so this is when I was doing investment banking in 2014, I just naturally ended up getting called by my first name, which I really like. I think Amanda's a great name, but I just didn't identify with it the same way. But as someone who's a first year analyst in banking, you don't necessarily feel empowered to tell your bosses to call you by your nickname. And over time, and in particular, when I started at Cowboy, first, I felt like there were members of our team who actually noted that my friends were calling me. Robson or Robbie. And so they started calling me that naturally. But also, I had this moment when I said, okay, well, I want to be called by this other name. Why am I letting other people define what to call me? And it's a very mm-hmm. empowering thing to say, hey, I like, I'm deciding what I want my name to be. Right. Um, and then my process for doing that, which I've talked to friends about, mm-hmm. is you want to have quote unquote name champions. So people who are going to always call you by that name so that it encourages others to, because I think there is this hesitancy to call someone by their nickname if you're not that close with them. Right. But if you have everybody else calling you by that name, then it's more natural. And so I, I just kind of decided that I wanted to be called that and I wanted to make it a little bit more formal. And it's one of those things that I, I feel very proud of in a sense. Not yeah. that I don't call my given name, but there's just something really powerful about saying this is the name I want to be called and being kind of like the like the biggest proponent of that
2: yeah no that's beautiful i think i i had a similar issue like while i was in high school so my name is very very common uh it's a very traditional indian name and um so we had at one point through school five amens in the, the same class oh wow and so, yeah so it, it's like you can think of it as like john or whatever it's like very very common and at that point, no one would refer to me as Amin. It would just say, hey, Samra, what's up? Like, it's, it's just usually a last name. I was totally cool with that because people just confused one another. Like, all five of us would just turn our heads, like, which one are you referring to kind of thing. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. But um, I know with overtime, I guess people just know me as Amin now. But, uh, you know, early on growing up, people would just call me by my last name. So that was kind of that given nickname. But I love how you kind of embody that and kind of personalize it to you and kind of who you are. And I think that's really important. Um, and also defines you as kind of other things in terms of investor and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's important. So let's, let's actually get into the whole VC side of things. So we, I want to learn a bit more about Cowboy. First of all, can you kind of give us a lowdown on how you met the team? And why did you feel like they were the right firm for you?
0: So I met the team via a recruiter, this amazing woman, Katie Buckstein, who had reached out and I was already very familiar with Cowboy because Aileen in particular is a very prominent figure in our industry. On top of being a world-class might assist investor, she also founded an organization called All Raise, Mm -hmm. which in my opinion has done more for women and minorities In the startup ecosystem than any other organization before at least from from my purview there's other amazing efforts out there as well but for me she was someone i would always i had always looked up to because she had the impact that i was hoping to have on the industry which is really being world-class at the job that i'm doing while also having a positive impact on how the industry operates and who gets to have opportunities and so i was very familiar with alien and Honestly, it was one of those things where I think I was sold on them.
2: Okay. Months
0: before they were sold on me and it's not right. to say that they had questions about me, but in venture the just especially for a small firm that doesn't hire a lot of people, the hiring process is quite long. Yeah. So it was a number of months long, which also makes sense because at the time I was going to be the fourth person on the team and we've grown a bit since. But it was one of those things where I just I looked around and had friends actually advising me to interview at other places and have other like comparables to look at because you don't want to bounce around an adventure. Right. But it's funny, my folks on my team will say this too. I'm very decisive. So when I decide I want something,
2: yeah, to go after
0: it. Fit, I don't, yeah, I don't need yeah. to like waffle. So I knew because I looked around and said, okay. There are no other teams that are seed-focused, which I was super interested in, that were the size, but also had the like gravitas that, in uh track record that Cowboy did, where I felt like I wasn't going to be one of many. I could be one and have a, a huge influence on the future of the fund. And also had, to, I mean, no one really, in my opinion, had someone even close to like what Aileen kind of represented to me. So I was very sold. And then it took a couple more months, and then the team was sold on me. But it was less exciting of a path, I'd say, than getting into banking because I right. didn't cold call. But uh, but in this case, it, I mean, it, it worked out really, really well.
2: Sweet. And like maybe as a follow on then, what is like the current f- uh, focus of the f- firm in terms of its thesis? And what are you guys looking for specifically when it comes to making an investment in the team?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So to start with what we're focused on, so we're a generalist fund with specialist investors so we invest across digital health consumer application layer SaaS, infrastructure SaaS, and fintech and um jill who is my partner based in new york she covers fintech for us she does a bit of healthcare as well and other regulated industry investing and i focus on software infrastructure so for me that's developer tools security tooling data analytics tooling and so Are we thesis driven? Yes, in the sense that each investor will have their areas that they're excited about and interested in. But as a firm, we are still generalists, which I think is actually a big advantage at Seed because A, so many opportunities will sit between sectors. And also, I think like one of the things that we've seen are outsiders to a space coming in and completely disrupting it. And so if you're so focused on, okay, the best security companies are founded by ex-CISOs, and you just kind of get a little bit, I think, too embedded in how things work today versus how they could work in the future. future. And, and so it's kind of, I love having a generalist team um, as a whole and folks who have different new perspectives. And I'll actually give you examples. So one of the companies that I partnered with is this SOC2 and compliance automation company called Drata. And the company was founded by these incredible founders who come from the ed tech space. They founded this company called Portfolium. And it wasn't obvious if you looked at their profiles, why they should be building in security, because security is one of those spaces that's fairly insular. You have a lot of folks who are ex-CISOs, ex-security engineers, and because it makes it a lot easier to then sell to people that they already know. But this team almost had more to overcome and built such a good product versus like others that were in the market. And I mean, they've been on an incredible tear. They announced a, a unicorn round last year and just been building exceptionally well. But I think seeing the potential in a team that didn't necessarily come from this space was something that our our team at Cowboy was uniquely set up to do.
2: That's very interesting because I've had discussions with a lot of VCs that focus in on certain niches, certain verticals. And when they're assessing the team, they're trying to kind of um, basically say you have the specific domain expertise to be building," So founder market fit. Uh, What I found interesting is like that's a kind of you guys have a kind of a contrarian thought around that whole process. And I would actually love your definition of what a contrarian thinker is, because knowing this now about Cowboy, I think that might be a good way to understand how you guys think about uh, investments.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would go so far to say it's contrarian. But I think we double and triple click into founders and their experiences mm-hmm. in a way that I haven't seen other funds do. So to give you an example, when I first started, I spent a lot of time trying to understand, particularly from Aileen and, and Ted, who's the other GP when I joined, on how they actually assess founders. Because Aileen in particular, because she's been doing this the longest, at cowboy yeah. had incredibly successful companies across fintech consumer infrastructure, like sectors that are just wildly different and have wildly different characteristics. And the common theme was the founder profile and certain founder characteristics across all of those investments. And so at the end of the day, I think like the founder is ultimately the most important or the founder group is the most important thing to be backing, particularly at Seed. And so I tried to distill the different characteristics she was looking for. And there were there are actually three that come that really stood out. So one are founders who we call learning animals. So okay. who are constantly finding ways to up level themselves because if you think about it, the the founder that is needed to get to product market fit versus the founder that's needed to build and scale a team versus the founder that's needed to take a company public, those are all very different personas and characteristics and skills. So you really need someone who's willing to grow into all of those roles and also have this mindset around wanting to learn and wanting to learn from the best where they're constantly saying, okay, I want to hire a VP of marketing. I've never done that before. Let me meet with 10 amazing VPs of marketing so I know what to look for. And they just have this learner's mindset. So that's the first thing. The second is looking for folks who are talent magnets. And what that means is people who are really good at getting really talented people around their idea and excited about the, what they're doing and it's not just employees like who's their co-founder and also who are the early engineers who are joining them it's angel investors advisors potential like customers and design partners like who is excited about what they're doing because in order to like gather the best like human resources but just people and just folks building towards your vision like, it takes a lot so we look for people who kind of have that about them and then the third thing is Having an intense focus on the needle-moving things, especially early on, we find that this is a huge differentiator for successful seed-stage companies because there's so many things that you could focus on, but saying, okay, these are the three things that need to go extremely well in order to get this company off the ground and like get us to where we need to to go to get closer to product market fit. Like having that, you know, product vision, but also just clarity on what needs to be done get in order to get there is actually a really r- rare skill and something that we look yeah. for. So I would say that yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it contrarian, but I would say that we have a an intense focus on founder characteristics in a way that I I haven't really seen, especially with sector-specific funds, they get really, yeah. really focused on trends in a space. And I haven't seen at multi-stage just because, you, I mean, you're balancing seed investing along with later stage investing. It's really hard to spend this much time. On a check that might be one to three million when you're like investing in companies super late stage with huge checks so i know that was a very long answer but no no no,
2: no. that's perfect yeah yeah that's that was really helpful in terms of understanding kind of how you guys look at the founder and i actually love to understand point three a bit better because um oftentimes i work with founders and you know executing and speed are obviously formulas to grow but In terms of the idea around understanding the priorities that accelerate your growth what have you noticed in terms of these founders understanding how to prioritize and move the needle what are those things that they're figuring out that perhaps other founders may be a bit slow to do
0: yeah so i'm actually going to steal an analogy from my partner ted which has always stuck with me when you're trying to climb a mountain, you don't just go straight up. There, there are different, you know, like switchbacks. You go back and forth, and these kind of represent different points of a journey. And I think what we've seen with some seed founders that haven't been successful is they look at the top of the mountain and then they just aim straight for that. They go straight up and they try to build towards the vision that they want to be their company in five years. But it doesn't work that way. You can't climb a mountain that way. Like oftentimes, if you try to do that, you don't end up going very far. You end up failing. But instead saying, OK, I know where I'm trying to get to. Like, I see what that vision is in five years. And I can then take that and pair it back to year one, where in year one, I'm not doing all the things to get me to that five year vision. I'm doing a set of things that set me up for year two, for year three, that ultimately get me there. And to maybe ground that in a very specific example, if you're trying to build. So I see this all the time with technical founders, where they'll say, be trying to like introduce a completely new technical paradigm so a, a shift in the way people are thinking and so they'll focus so much on building the technology that will enable that like building the platform and won't focus on the specific features or the entry point yeah. so they never end up getting there where they're like look i've built this beautiful system but they have no one using it because yeah. they haven't actually figured out how to insert like product one and their entry point into current workflows and so they don't get the opportunity to get to the bigger vision because they haven't figured out the right insertion point so I just think it's really um, it's really important, because while you don't want to be just focused on a certain like one feature and then your company doesn't end up you know growing into that vision, you also don't want to be so focused on the long-term vision early on that you can't end up getting started and getting that first you know like line across the mountain done. So I think that's we look for founders, I can think, do the long- term, short-term game. Yeah. And we also like we work with a lot of first-time founders. We help coach them on that. But that ultimately has to come from them really understanding, you know, you like climb a mountain using switchbacks. You're, yeah. not, you're not going straight up.
2: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think it's it's a journey. And I, I like the analogy of like kind of almost like this roadmap of like yeah. one, two, three, four until you get to the top. Um, so the the next question I have for you is around actually hiring. And what are some of the common mistakes that you see early stage founders making when it comes to hiring engineers which is like a fundamental hire early stage you need them but what are some common mistakes that you're seeing
0: lots so uh, i'll distill a few of them so first and i won't say that this is just engineers but uh, i would say this happens often with technical founders Mm -hmm. is just having their friends and people that they trust join the company rather than assessing their specific skills i think this applies for roles outside of engineering as well but Oftentimes we'll see like a founder, two founders, three founders that will then bring on six engineers from companies they worked with before. And A, they might not need those six engineers to get to the, you know, the place that they need to in order to get to the next run of funding or their first milestones. Um, But also they're they just like it's often easier to move fast with a smaller focused team early on. And so you can actually end up moving slower while burning more cash because you overhired early on. Right. Um, that's the first one is really being thoughtful and purposeful about the team you're building and the early engineers that you're building on because you you might not need to like bring that whole group of friends that you worked with before or the folks that you've worked with just might not be the right fit for what you need. So that's the first one. The second one is over focusing on hiring engineers because that's what these founders have managed before. Right? they'll say, okay, I'm gonna build up my team and I'm gonna make all of my early hires engineers, but maybe one or two of those hires needed to be someone on the developer relations or marketing or go to market front because you need to be like getting feedback from the market right. and just, that's fine. Sometimes it might always be engineers, but I feel like that's the default often of, oh, I need builders on my team. And so I think that's like the second thing that especially for technical founders we see happen. And then the third, and this is very near and dear to my heart, is unfortunately you still see like engineering roles, despite there being so many women who are enrolled in software engineering programs in colleges, you still see most of these roles held by men.
2: Homogeneous, yeah.
0: Yeah. And the problem is you will see a lot of, especially if it's male founders hiring people that they know and have worked with before, and before you know it, the team of 20 is 20 male engineers, no diversity. And then you get to an oh shit moment where it's, okay, we need to add diverse engineers. And speaking from like a a woman's perspective, I would be a little bit uh, concerned about being the first woman on a team of 20. I would say, okay, this is more of a cover your ass type situation. than a Like you're being purposeful about building a diverse team. So I would say, especially in technical roles, I see this mistake happen over and over and over again, But despite the fact that there's so much research out there on how much better diverse teams perform. And so I also would say that like, A, if you don't have it, you should be meaningful and thoughtful in your life and having a diverse group of business contacts and people that you work with in teams. But two, being self-reflective and saying, okay, we definitely want to have a diverse team, even at this early stage. Like, let me build up my network and get to know people outside of it who are diverse. So that one I feel particularly passionate about because I feel like it's something that everyone talks about, but there isn't a lot of action towards it. Yeah. And it's something that I, at Cowboy, we encourage and talk to our founders about a lot, especially if they're, um, they're male founders, the, the founding team isn't diverse to start with.
2: Yeah. And I actually love that because, I mean, although I identify as male and I'm kind of a uh, part of the BIPOC community, um, I've seen this in tech happen way too often. I've been yeah. in like three different companies uh, where they have a, the engineering team is about 10 to 15. They're like, oh shit, they hired their first HR person. And now it's like, let's implement D&I. Um, and then they hire their first uh, two uh, female engineers. And literally like two, three months in, they quit just because they're not comfortable. And then that's just another you know it just sets you back a bit in terms of your initiatives and like to your point i think it's very very important and i love that you guys kind of doing it earlier rather than saying oh we have a problem we just need to you know put a bandaid on it kind of thing that's the worst approach to take around that
0: yeah so. definitely and i mean dei like or just having a diverse team should be part of i think should be part of every modern team's values And those should be set up front. It's not something that you kind of turn around and say, oh, like, what do we value as a group when we're past series A? So I think it is something that needs to be addressed up front. It's really hard to then solve for later on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in terms of a technology now that you're truly passionate about, I actually wanted to really learn more about this. Uh, It's open source, right? So if you can help us understand, first of all, what is meant when someone refers to a software or tool being open source? What is it?
0: Yeah, so open source at its core is really when the source code is available for use, for editing, for, in some cases, commercializing on your own, but it's code that essentially is open and is free. And I think there's a lot of different, I and mean, we can get into this, but there's a lot of different permutations of what open source could mean. In a lot of ways, There's alignment with crypto and open source and just the concept of having this open open ownership um, or, or open knowledge of ownership and, um, and yeah, it's something that I would say uh, it is a delivery method but also a way of building companies around community support and documentation that I think represents the future of most technical tooling areas. So happy to talk through kind of the passion about it, but it it was actually the reason um, just my excitement about the the model, but also just open source as a a trend in general, was why I started with uh, an angel investor friend, Tim Chan, the open source startup podcast.
2: Sweet. And so like when I think of open source, it doesn't necessarily have to relate back to software. It can just be the sharing of information uh, as well, kind of combining.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a good question because uh, open source is uh, it, it is it's about sharing code and making code open source, and and like the the actual source of it versus source available, which is slightly different. Right. Okay. Um, but I think the concept of open source is something that a lot of other areas and methods have adopted. So this concept of having kind of a shared understanding of what something means. But yes, open source does refer to code.
2: Got it. And so why is it so important and why is it such a critical technology now for future innovations?
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's been around for a long time, this like concept of having code that's open for others to manipulate and see the source code of and and have community built around. But I think when you think of all the trends behind enterprise software today, so product-led growth, having individual contributors or more junior folks on teams adopt their tools versus having it pushed down from their manager or their VP. This is really like open source really lends itself to that trend. And on top of that, it also opens up like if you have tools that are comparable in many ways, but one's open source and one's not, you look at the open source one and say, okay, on top of the fact that this is a tool that's really meant for someone who's more junior, so who's the user of that technology, You also get the benefit of community support. So almost every open source project, uh, especially ones that end up having a paid product around it, they'll have a Discord or a Slack community where you have other folks using that tool in addition to any support that you would get from the company that can answer questions. And also because you have this whole group kind of behind a tool or technology, you also get really good documentation because everybody is kind of asking questions that then get folded into it you at the same time have a lot more trust in it because it isn't necessarily tied to a certain company. So if that company gets acquired, the open source piece of it still exists independent of that. And so there's a lot of pieces. And then, I mean, on top of that, you have the distribution potential where you end up having folks that can adopt it for an open source version of it in the truest form of open source for free before like buying a version of it, whether it's like enterprise features or functionality or whatever, commercial product product on top. But, it's really a model that lends itself to the user. So, it's like the best possible way, in my opinion, for a user to adopt technology. And so, especially for technical domains, I think that like we really saw open source become the standard in developer tools. And we've now like really seen it moved into the data space. So, if you look at the modern data stack, companies like Airbyte and DBT, they're all open source. And we're like slowly seeing some adoption in security. I think that's going to change even more over time and we're gonna see more adoption there. But I think it's, um, it's just a really powerful way to build a company. It's very hard because mm-hmm. you're essentially managing, if you are the owner slash like initial creator of an open source project and you're building a product around it, that's a, like a lot of work. You're essentially creating two businesses at the same time. Right. But if you do it right, I think it can be extremely powerful and hard for someone else to overcome that's not open source.
2: Got it. And, and you mentioned a, a bit of this, but are there any risks to being open source?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, you can end up offering too much for free. So it makes it really, really hard to then turn around and have a paid product. So I mean, that's one of the biggest ones. I think there's also this expectation that you set with the community when you have an open source company that you're going to be building both paid product Usually early on, but also you're going to be managing the community and offering them support. So Go if you ahead. all of a sudden stop ignoring the free community and folks in there and you just focus on paid, then that can really upset the community too and stunt that growth. I also think that, like, figuring out a good way to, I think, to be honest, the biggest challenge is support. Like, I see it with the companies I invest in that are open mm-hmm. source all this time, where It's really hard for them to support their open source community and answer all the questions and slides and Discord while trying to juggle their business objectives. So, and that's at the same time, a lot of companies will have open source uh, builders. So, folks building, say, connectors for their company and then figuring out how to support those as well. Like, let's say a company like Airbyte will have a ton of different companies building custom connectors. And then it's like, okay, well, how are you supporting those? Because they're now part of the product. And so I think the support element is usually the most challenging one with open source.
2: Got it. It's almost like those network effects. There's more additional layers of challenges that comes with it being open. So people, you know, can use code and then maybe add more connections and all that. And it's like, oh, shoot, there's a new complexity after have to (laughs) look after. Uh, Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, So can you name one open source company that stands out to you today? And why is their tech so impactful?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots, but... To name one that's near and dear to my heart, because I actually talked to the founders when they were raising for a different company and loved the founders and did not end up investing. And then they pivoted into building their new company, which is wildly successful. But um, but I, I want to say Airbyte because I think that it just makes sense from a product perspective to have connectors that are open source because you can really leverage the ability of the community to build because you're always going to have this long tail of connectors it's going to be all of these areas that users want to connect to that you're not necessarily going to build yourself just be or at least build in the time frame they want so in this case you can really have the open source community be part of your essentially r d or engineering team and so i think i appreciate what they're doing because it leverages the model in a really smart way and they also did really interesting things that I haven't seen a lot of other companies do, at least um, at the at the stage that Airbnb did it, around really making sure that they could track who is in their community. And this is a very debated topic because a lot of folks say if you're open source, you shouldn't know kind of who's in that open source community because you're using it to commercialize. But they did it really smartly and ended up figuring out how to make it an opt out so folks didn't have to do it. But if you were okay with them knowing who you were, then that was just data that they had that could then inform their paid product strategy and also their community growth strategy. So I think that they did just some really smart things around the model where they were able to really use it to its full potential in a way that I haven't really seen other companies you know, be able to do.
2: Sweet, no, that's awesome. I have to check them out then, I'll learn a bit more afterwards. Um, so if someone is interested in potentially working for an open source company, what sort of skills uh, you know, lean towards uh, them standing out?
0: Yeah, so there are a lot of skills that won't be unique to open source So, around building really strong product and marketing it. But I think what's unique to open source is the community element. So, you see a lot of folks around developer relations that will join open source companies really early because of this community aspect that is unique and, again, can be really powerful, but you have to know how to manage it correctly. So, I think that if you want to join an open source company, even as an engineer, usually you end up being more user facing than in a non open source company. So, I would say that, like, I would really, it, it depends on your background if you want to join an open source company as someone technical versus not. But really having that community mindset is something that I think all folks who are on an an open source team really need to focus on.
2: Sweet. Um, So let's talk to you about your podcast, the Open Source Podcast. So I'd love to learn about the motivation behind it and how it came to be.
0: Yes. So I would also say that similar to my career path, a lot of the projects that I take on end up being more step function where I'm digging into something, there seems to be kind of a gap in understanding or information, and then I'll try to look to fill it. So the podcast really came from a totally separate project that I was writing with Tim Chen, who's my co-host and a really close friend and an amazing technical angel investor. And so me and him were digging into go-to-market strategies for technical companies And as part of that, we were talking to founders of companies like LaunchDarkly and HashiCorp and LightStep. And so we were having these conversations to really distill mostly how these companies were able to land their first enterprise deal and then distill all that into some learnings that would be helpful to other earlier stage founders of technical companies. And one of the things that we found out was that the conversations themselves were really hard to fully capture in the blog post that we were writing. And so they would be super valuable to by themselves have available to others. So we were thinking like, okay, if we we had recorded those conversations in a way that we could have made them useful and posted them, like that sounds a lot like a podcast. And then we were talking about, okay, would we do a podcast that is specifically focused on go to market? Like that seems to be a gap in understanding for a lot of early stage technical founders. And then we kind of said, OK, well, most of these companies are open source and open source in particular is really hard to figure out go to market for because time me the commercial product. And to the points that we talked about earlier around trying to manage a community where they have a free product and figuring yeah. out what to make paid, like it's in particularly challenging versus, I think, other go to market strategies. And we looked and there weren't really any podcasts focused on open source or at least none that were kind of focused in the way that we wanted them to be. So we like filled a need where we were like, okay, well, this is something we would want. And so we created it as something that we would have wanted to have access to to learn. And it kind of grew on itself. So we started it about two years ago now. We now have 25,000 listeners. We have 61 now public conversations with founders of companies like Chronosphere and Vercel and Mobile Dev and HashiCorp and Mongo and PlanetScale. And so it's turned into really this passion project, but also something that I think serves the community really well, because there just isn't a lot of great content, I think, out there on how to successfully build a commercial open source company.
2: Sweet, no, I I love that in terms of the motivation you guys found that niche. um, One, unique to yourselves, but outside there wasn't really something out there and you've created a very strong community around it. So uh, that's kind of what we're trying to do as well, but I guess a bit more agnostic in terms of our theme um, so I'd love to ask you, podcaster to podcaster, uh, what is the, one of the most memorable moments that sticks out to you, um, as you record a show?
0: So the most memorable, and there were a few reasons this is memorable, so I'll get into those, but it was a podcast episode that we did with Erica Brusha, who's currently an investor in GP at Redpoint Ventures, but she was previously CEO at GitHub and her husband, who was a previous community lead and also just a community guru in general, Jono Bacon, and they're married. And so it was the first time we'd done a podcast with two people who were married. And it was, I think, the second time that we'd done a podcast with two people. And so we were still kind of learning how yeah. that would work. And at one point in the podcast, we talked to both of them because they both do a lot of angel investing and now Erica full-time investing about what they look for in open source founders that they back. And Erica was the one who turned it back on us and asked our our opinion, our view. And we actually don't get asked to then be the, you know, interviewee yeah, on a podcast. Yeah. So it was memorable because both Tim and I were like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, we'd love to abide on this. And so it was really memorable for the reason that it was our first married couple and one of our first couples on the podcast. But then at the same time, the, the first time that Tim and I, we were also like flipped around and we were in the quote-unquote hot seat. And so it was, it was memorable, but also really enjoyable. And we will definitely have them back on because they were just amazing guests. And I think both are just incredible humans and great you know, actors in the open source community that I uh, feel lucky that Cowboy calls friends, but I do too.
2: Sweet. No, I actually had a very similar experience uh, related to podcasting. So uh, we had Dennis who on, uh, he runs Mem.ai. And he flipped the script on me as well. And it's usually me asking you questions. And then he started basically validating the product that he was selling throughout the podcast. I'm like,
0: <laughs> I love that's that. That's just
2: freaking smart. Like you're asking me like what my problems are related to knowledge sharing and all that. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this, but uh, it, it was super smart. And it just like, it threw me off a little bit because it was like the first time that ever happened to me. But yeah, I was like, man, that's, actually a really smart approach. You just uh, ask for some validation during a podcast. That's super unique. Uh, so that's something I found pretty memorable myself. Another initiative that I see you leading is called Modern Angels. So can you first tell us what it's all about? Why now? And what does it help represent?
0: Yes, and I'll start this by saying that similar to the Open Source Startup Podcast and a lot of different initiatives that I work on on the side, this was really a needs-based thing that I didn't plan for it to turn into the community that it did, but it kind of grew, I I think, because there was more of a demand for it than even I had predicted. But what it is, is a community of female non-binary operator angel investors who are all individually investing. It is not a syndicate, but it's a group that is now run on Slack for deal sharing and advice on investing strategies and we host community events we are actually doing an in-person summit for over 100 operator angels in two days in san francisco and so it's really this community and what the way it started it was actually born out of a need that i saw with some of my friends so I had dinner with two of my really like wildly successful and smart operator friends. And I had previously asked both of them if they were interested in angel investing in cowboy deals multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so I think in my head, I just assumed that they were getting asked to join rounds for a lot of companies because they both, one is CMO of a huge fintech company, one is head of strategy at a like $20 billion okay. company. So they're like... Super, super smart and really senior. And so in my head, I was like, of course, they're getting demands all the time to get added to cap tables because they're both so impressive. And what I found out was that they were interested in it, but it was not the case. And the missing piece really seemed to be the network where I was really close with them, but they weren't necessarily close with a lot of other people in BC who were showing them deals. It was really tough for them to you know, get access to deal flow. So I was like, okay, well, this is something I feel like I can help with because I've been in venture for now eight years. I have a pretty good network. So I got a bunch of details about them in a Google sheet. So check size, how they would work with companies, areas they're interested in. And I I gathered their info and then I messaged a few other friends to see if they'd be interested. had about 10 of them in this Google sheet. And then I sent it to a bunch of friends who were at other VC firms. I was like, hey, all of these amazing female and non-binary operators are interested in angel investing. If you have investments that you'd like to add them to you should definitely reach out and i also i mean like these folks have such amazing backgrounds it's not about adding diversity to the cap table they just are amazing operators and should be getting that access it's just like I, I think like it's something that at cowboy we'd always thought about as far as having diverse angels on our cap tables but i just i don't think it's been as much of a priority for other firms and hopefully it will be now in the in the future so anyway that was how it started I tweeted about it because I was thinking, okay, well, maybe there's other amazing operators who kind of fit our criteria being female non binary and would want to join the group. And so I tweeted out, and it very quickly became a database of 100 um, folks. And then I initially had our community in Discord. Discord is very chaotic, and I think this group is just not great. So I moved them over to Slack, and the community is just built on itself, where initially I was the, the person that was providing the most deal flow for my network. And now there are a number of very active investors in the group sharing deal flow where every, uh, I would say every other day, there's new deals being shared. And also um, a lot of the like women and non-binary folks in the group asking questions about, hey, how do you think about price rounds versus saves? How do you think about you know, like valuations changing, how do you think about how many investments I should make in a year, like my portfolio strategy. And it's really become this very open and friendly forum Mm -hmm. for all of these um, amazing operators to learn from each other and really build their angel investing portfolios. And so it's something that I think was filling a need. And I've just become like, you know, really proud of, but also really passionate about supporting.
2: I I love that empowering others that might not have that existing opportunity and kind of also something very important, like, you know, near and dear to you. So I I, I love those kind of things. And I have to ask you, with all these um, initiatives that you have going on, and also being a partner in a venture firm, how do you manage your time?
0: (laughs) It's a good question. Uh, Well, I have amazing help from both my team at Cowboy, where everybody is is always willing to like lend a hand on different things, but I also have two interns that I work with. So Masura, uh-huh. who's actually a, um, she's just wrapping up her schooling at the University of Waterloo, and she's also interning at Replit at the same time. She's amazing. She helps me a lot with Modern Angels, but also with different things at um, at Cowboy. And then I have an amazing. Audio engineering intern who works on the podcast with me, um, also Canadian. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's great. So they both help a lot with those side projects, which otherwise would be really tough. But I would also say that I, well, a, I, I try to be really smart about how I spend my time and uh, just really make sure that I like am always prioritizing my portfolio companies and also new investments and cowboy related things. And this is a lot of like nights and weekends that are spent on these side projects, but also, a lot of this work kind of folds into my work at Cowboy where yeah. a lot of what I talk about on the open source podcast or the founders I talk to, that helps me have a very like strong prepared mind for companies I look at because I, I do invest in a lot of open source companies. So it's it's a lot of work that ends up lending itself to the like day-to-day stuff I do at Cowboy. And then similarly with Modern Angels, I mean, some of the women in the group have sent me fantastic leads that we've then gotten close to investing. And so it's like those... The work that I do is also very related to my job at Cowboy. But yeah, you have to be really thoughtful on how you spend your time. Because I I think there's only so many nights where I'm like midnight trying to, you know, edit podcasts and get them posted. So, uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, I love it, but it's definitely something that I yeah. have to be really thoughtful about time-wise.
2: Yeah, no binging on Netflix, I assume, on a weekly <laughs> yeah. basis, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so this is an open question and uh, one that we'll end the podcast off with. If you knew um, what you know today, what would you have done differently?
0: It's a good question. I do tend to live without like really looking back and regretting a lot and try to look forward more. But I think I, I wish I could have placed the mindset that I have now onto a younger version of me in some sense, where I I think I was pretty bold when it came to cold calling and reaching out to folks for my first job in banking. But really this, this like empowered feeling that I feel from both like being a cowboy, but also like building some of the communities and networks that I have I like. I can see how much it both pushes me to do more, but also empowers me to do a good job at like the things I'm doing. Where, I, like, it was kind of a no brainer, and also not stressful for me to say, okay, I'm going to put on this summit for a hundred plus women and find sponsors for it and get content. And I like. I felt very empowered to do that, and I kind of. I wish I could have put that mindset on myself earlier, but at the same time, I think your confidence grows as you have more experiences and as you kind of watch yourself do things that I, I think would have previously been hard. So I think that's that, like it would have been hard to put on a younger version of myself, but I think the more that you do and the more that you put yourself out there, the more empowered you feel and the more capable you feel. Cause I think a lot of the limitations we put on ourselves just come from our own minds. So I think like the more you right do podcasts like yeah. you do and, and just, you know, try things and iterate the more you kind of enable yourself to do more in the future.
2: Absolutely. I love that. And I think I have a similar philosophy. I just wish I learned that, you know, value creation and, you know, also like be patient with a few things. It's very important because I, I think sometimes social media and all this wazoo that happens within tech and all these other industries and see success surrounding you. I think sometimes you stem away from your actual end goal. So I wish yeah. i You know, as a, I guess you're kind of young and kind of, you know, trying to go out there and be something, but be patient. That's something I wish I had done a bit more uh, of earlier, but yeah, Robbie, that's the end of the podcast. One thing we always love ending off with is a small little lightning round. So four questions, you'll have a couple seconds to answer each one. Let me know when you're ready.
0: Awesome. Let's go.
2: Okay, sweet. First question. Favorite book of all time?
0: Untethered Soul.
2: Sweet. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? I feel like it's,
0: I should say some like Texan, but honestly, Taylor Swift. I just Oh,
2: okay. Best, cool.
0: Best lyrics writer of all time and just captures so much emotion in what she does. And I think like just her artistry is incredible and her range is incredible.
2: Sweet. Now that's an interesting one. Okay. One thing that you miss about Canada and it can't be the snow or family. It has to be something different.
0: The healthcare, okay. and I say, that, I say that with the caveat that I think you get better <laughs> service in the U.S. But and this is not just like personal, where yes, I see like the bills that I pay in addition to the healthcare yeah. I have. But I mean, healthcare should not be a privilege that you get if you have a job. It is a basic human right, mm. and I just like I, I miss the ability for anybody to get access to it. So anyway, that, yeah. Okay. Feel, feel very strongly about that. Okay.
2: Fair enough. And then a very controversial question that we always left to ask is, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no?
0: I love pineapple on my pizza.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm a hard no on that one, but it's okay. We're still friends. We'll still be friends. But yeah, thanks so much. Any uh, last words for our audience, maybe where they can find you um, if they listen to the podcast?
0: Oh, definitely. I would say that I mean I I'm pretty open on my DMs on Twitter and appreciate really thoughtful reach outs about things if you're interested in similar things or in the, some of the things I'm building would love to you know always hear from you but yeah if you're interested in open source listen to the podcast if you're a female or non-binary operator angel definitely reach out about joining the community but this was fantastic you were an amazing podcast host I definitely took some notes on how Sweet not- I
2: really appreciate that. Thank so
0: you. I I uh, I think you're doing a great job with this too.